You're listening to Knowing Faith, a podcast of Training the Church. On today's episode, we are going to explore the beauties of the genealogy in the gospel according to Matthew. And you may be thinking, okay, genealogy, second episode, what are you guys thinking? You're not really going to be able to keep us listening. But I assure you that if you will stick around for this episode, you will discover some new things like we did as we discussed the genealogy of Jesus in the gospel according to Matthew. I hope you enjoy the discussion. All right, welcome back. Um, I am Kyle Worley, and I'm here with uh, Doctor JT English. Oh, man, you knew that I, was coming. I did not know that was coming. Well, I surprised okay. you. And Mrs. Jen Wilkin, is that right? That's right. I never get Miss and Mrs. Right. I am married. That okay. is correct. Great. We are ready to jump into talking about the genealogy. Now, come on. There's not much heat intrinsically to the topic of genealogies, is there? I get so mad when people say that. Why? Because the genealogies are really important. I mean, one of the biggest things that I like to try to convince the women of in my classes is that genealogy day is going to be their favorite day of the whole study. <laughs> <laughs> how, how often is that promise fulfilled? Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. We did pretty well. Guys, in, in... this is just a Sermon on the Mount. <laughs> right. Just remember what I said first week. <laughs> genealogy is where it's at. That's... But really, I mean, it's like every time we hit a genealogy when we're studying, I always tell them, you know, you need to go read all scriptures, God breathed and profitable because it's in there for a reason and it's a really yeah. good reason. And so, yeah, I'm going to, I'm going to need you to sell me on this podcast episode. I'll tell you that while I know it's the inspired and errant word of God, and I'm grateful for it. Oftentimes when I encounter a genealogy, it feels a little bit like the prologue that rolls in front of the Star Wars film. Yeah, you know, that long string of text that just rolls. You're like, I'm ready for the action. Like, let me see some Jedis and some lightsabers. And all you see is, you know, three minutes of text floating on a screen. And I'm right. going, let's get to the action here. Well, when I was a new believer, I was super confused by genealogies. It's like, okay, I'm going to open up my New Testament. I really want to know about the story of Jesus Christ. And you open and it's like, I have no idea what's going on. I don't know how to pronounce anything. It can be super confusing for people. Uh, at least that's the way I felt. Well, and one of the first rules of good writing or good speaking is you got to start with something that really right. grabs people. And I think that's part of the disconnect for us is we hit the genealogy in the beginning of Matthew and we're like, that is what you started with. Right. And and really that doesn't show that Matthew didn't know what he was doing. I wonder if people are thinking that about this podcast. Right. They're like, okay, <laughs> get to the point. are going to do a genealogy first. Okay. Come on, people. Like, genealogies there's no, are the there's best. No, there's nothing more boring than talking about how boring genealogies yeah. are. <laughs> right? No, but seriously, like our the fact that we're not amazed by it just shows that we don't we don't know how the Bible fits together. I mean, because if you think about it, he leads off with this genealogy. There has not been a genealogy mentioned in scripture since Ezra and Nehemiah. So five hundred years go by where nobody talks about names in this way. And then all of a sudden you have at the opening of the New Testament, there's this list of names. And so if we don't, if that doesn't raise a big question mark in our minds, if we tune out, then it, then it, then we're not paying attention. Yeah, and to be fair to like gospel genre literature, like what Matthew's trying to do, this is a big, like it is a, an attention grabber. Like it's yeah. kind of this big fanfare thing. Us, it's, yeah. it's just, I think we uh, perhaps don't have the lens uh, to understand why it is. And so that's one of the things I hope we, I'm hoping we're able to do in this podcast is yeah. kind of give some of the ones of why this is a big deal. Right. Well, so why? Why do the Gospels include genealogies? 
I got to go first because Chen has, I think, better content. So I'm just going to always. I'm just, just going to always, first. always yeah. go first. Yeah, JT, right. <laughs> I'm up. JT goes first. Um, yeah. So I mean, the Old Testament, as Jen just alluded to, ends with this note of anticipation, mm-hmm. and the genealogies, I think, are really the gospel writers' opportunity to say this anticipation is being fulfilled in Jesus Christ, and they're showing all of these Old Testament themes, like we'll we'll talk about here in just a minute in Matthew's uh, prologue and his genealogy whether it's a person or a covenantal theme of God's faithfulness in the Old Testament is now kind of coming to fruition in Jesus Christ. And it's it's rooting him in the story of Israel and saying all of God's promises are being fulfilled now in his son, the person who is Jesus of Nazareth. That's good. Anything else, Jen? Come on, Jen. I Let's mean, go. Come yeah, on, blow us up. A huge theme in the book of Matthew is this idea of fulfillment. And this is like the ultimate list of the fulfillment of the promises of God. And uh, I think that's the that's sort of the high-minded theological purpose of it. But I think there's also a real sweetness to the genealogies because they remind us every single time that when God looks down on humanity, he doesn't see this faceless mass. He mm. sees individuals. Mm. And so I think that's another really mm. good thing for us to meditate on. Anytime you see names listed in the scriptures is to remember that God loves the church, but he also loves me, Jen Wilkin. He loves JT English and he loves Kyle Worley and he knows your name. Oh man, that is good, Jen. I can, I mean, I have never ever considered the way that genealogies by naming people are calling our attention to the way that God directs the course of history through specific people and how he's using them and how he cares for them and how mm-hmm. he names. He names even some people. Uh, in unsavory these, people. Unsavory yeah. people in these genealogies. Yeah. Saying this is who it was. It right. was this person. More on that in a minute. But what I, I think one of the things that I felt the first time I read the genealogies, particularly in the gospels, I said, okay, these aren't the same thing. So what are some of the differences between the genealogies in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John? There are differences. Okay, there are differences. (laughs) Yes, Dr. (laughs) English. There are. One gospel doesn't have a genealogy. (laughs) That's a big difference. I'll be back. (laughs) He's like, Googling. (laughs) Which gospel doesn't have a genealogy? Yeah. Yeah. What are the differences? Some of the key ones. Well, I think it's important to understand, like, not just the ones that are in the gospels, but genealogies in general, they have a purpose, right? And so I think we tend to read them and we want to take them um, very literally. Like, we want to make calculations of, of... the number of years that passed and things like that. But but I think we have to observe the literary form that they're trying to follow. And so this is a perfect example. The one in Matthew is following a very specific form. And so just as you see in Genesis, for example, where there are 70 names listed because that number 70 is significant uh, or, you know, all of the the numbering that is used to, to show completeness um, in, in the Old Testament that's carried forward into this gospel of Matthew where he's going to do three groups of 14 names and he's doing that on purpose because he wants to show that it's the you know it's the whole in the fullness of time i mean this thing is complete and it's gone down through these generations for yeah just i mean i think one of the things that's important time. to remember in reading genealogies but just gospel literature in general that that i was I, I heard somebody say this a few years ago and was kind of stunned by it's just the the reminder that the evangelists matthew mark luke and john in some cases had decades of preaching experience, of proclaiming the gospel, testifying, perhaps writing about it in other forms before they wrote the gospels. And so there's this kind of highly stylized kind Mm -hmm. of theological literature that they're now able to kind of weave together this incredible beauty of, for example, three sets of 14, uh, that, that if it's just, it's hard to see it on first glance, but then you see like, oh my goodness, 
yeah, there's such kind of genius and the depth level of scholarship to this, and, and thought. And I'm really and not intent. doing the text a service mm-hmm. if I just kind of skim over it, make fun of some of the names and how to pronounce them. When actuality, he's he's making a massive claim: the kingdom is arriving. Mm-hmm. Well, and the expectation that those names are known to his readers too. I think that's another thing that we miss is we, we're like, why is he telling me about all these nobodies? And and that again demonstrates our own um, sort of lack of familiarity with the Old Testament. But even those who are familiar in the Old Testament, you know, can you read these lists and be like, who was that guy? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So it is. It's a good. It's a good sort of review quiz as well. So you just said something. Three sets of fourteen. But what are you talking about? Yes, I mean, you just look at the structure here of, uh, of of the genealogy, and there's really kind of two breaks. There's a break, I guess, look, between um, it starts with Abraham, and then it works its way all the way down to David, and there's 14, I guess, generations mentioned here, and then it works its way from David down to exile, the deportation to Babylon, another 14, and then it works its way from the deportation back to the arrival of Jesus Christ, another 14. So these kind of really th- kind of three sets of 14 generations or kind of iterations of this genealogy that he's highlighting to show. These are kind of the three periods, major so periods of Israel history. That's a really unique feature of Matthew's Are there any other unique features of Matthew's genealogy or his audience uh, between him and Luke, for example? Luke has the, is the other gospel with the most extended genealogy in this way. Are there any other unique features? Well, uh, it's you know commonly known that Luke's genealogy is traced through Mary, and both Mary and Joseph lines point back to David. But so then the question comes up: Well, why have Luke's go that way, and uh, the one in Matthew is rooted in the genealogy of Joseph, who isn't actually Jesus' earthly father? You know, isn't his biological father? And I don't know. I mean, I've heard different things on this. I'd be curious to hear what you guys have heard. I've heard that it's probably because what Matthew is doing is establishing his uh, his legal right to the throne of Israel. Uh, as passed down through the father. So his Joseph is his adoptive father, certainly, and so he would receive that right through him and that Luke is establishing his biological lineage. Mm-hmm. I think that's right. So, I mean, it's clear definitely that's what Matthew's doing. So, mm-hmm. uh, And that's, I think, what accounts for the differences here is these are two different kinds of genealogies, yeah. perhaps one more bit biological and the other one kind of dynastic or kingly. Like, they're, we're, look, we're waiting for a king, and this king is going to be a son of Abraham, son of David, and look who it is. It's Jesus Christ. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, I think that's definitely another, another, and maybe we want to come back to this, but just another feature that I think is just stunning. So, everybody loves the prologue to John. You know, in the beginning was yeah. the Word, and the Word was, was with God, and the Word was God. But this introduction, like the first few words here, would have been absolutely stunning to a first century Jewish audience. Specifically, it says, this is the book of beginnings. This is the book of origins. And that language uh, just immediately harkens back, not to Genesis 1-1, but Genesis 2-14. It's the exact same language that's used in the Greek translation of the Old Testament that says, ultimately what Matthew's trying to say is, new creation is dawning in Jesus Christ. And that, I mean, like, it's incredible. (laughs) So there's this like, and and so again, I, I can't tell you how many times before I learned that I read the gospel of Matthew and just cruised right over mm-hmm. it. This is the gospel of Matthew, the book, you know, it's like, okay, great. Mm-hmm. But he's, what he's saying is, is this is a new Genesis, a new dawning that God's creation is, 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 is kind of exploding again in terms of its fruitfulness and what God is about to accomplish in this person. So really what Matthew's saying is pay attention to the person and work of Jesus Christ. Yeah. What my eyes immediately go to on the page and what my ears immediately hear is in verse one, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Could you pick two more like luminary figures (laughs) in the history of Israel to say this Jesus Christ is the son 
of your covenant head, really, mm-hmm. right? And then also, he's also the son of the greatest king in your imagination. Right. Like, that's who this Jesus Christ is. He is the proper and appropriate son. And so calling forth all of this prophecy and expectation of a Jewish Jewish Messiah who would be both a covenant head and the Davidic king. And immediately, Matthew says, in like the first breath, this is who that is. It's this Jesus Christ. Yeah, so I think it might even be important there for for some of our listeners, because I mean, this is something that I'm still learning in my understanding of kind of how the covenants fit together, specifically in the Old Testament, is what, what, what you just said, yes, but what does that mean, right? So he's Abraham's son. Why is that significant? He's the son of David. Why is that significant, Kyle? Yeah, whoa. <laughs> all right, here we go. go. Uh, go I can't lose on this one. It's one of the biggest questions in <laughs> all do, of the Bible. You're fired. <laughs> Taking um, notes over I mean, here. So you really could divide this up. And in, in, in biblical theologians, biblical scholars will, are going to arrive on why this is significant in maybe some different ways. Sure. But yeah, everybody yeah, yeah. agrees that it is significant. And the reason that it is significant is because for Israel, Abraham had been the the covenant head. Mm-hmm. He had been the one who had been delivered the promises of offspring as, you know, as a multitude of the stars, mm-hmm. right? That there was going to be all of these people that have come. And so Israel knows itself as the children of Abraham. I mean, that's, that's who they believe themselves to be. That's who they are. And so to say that Jesus Christ has come as the son of Abraham is to say something of, it's not just as Matthew saying, yeah, he's in Israel. I like you all are no, but he is like Genesis 22 says the chosen seed, right? He's not just the offspring promised to Abraham and that there would be many of them of whom the Israelites are those people. But like Genesis 22 says that he is the chosen seed who would come and would make right what sin had made wrong and restore God's people. But then for David, so that's that's kind of Abraham and some of the ways that Jesus Christ is the son of Abraham is significant. But as the son of David, you know, keep in mind that the Davidic kingdom, when you get into uh, the history of David, at one point, right before the construction of the temple, it appears like all of God's promises have come true, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, like there they are, they're in the land, they're building the temple and everybody's gathered and it's a place of peace. And what happens? It all falls apart, mm-hmm. right? And so Jesus as the proper son of David, he comes as, like Psalm 2 says, the Lord who says to my Lord who sits at my right hand. So essentially, this is the king that David looks to. As the son of David, Jesus Christ is coming to fulfill what David almost fulfilled, but mm-hmm. ultimately failed to do, which is to be the true Davidic king who would establish peace in the land and who would give his people a kingdom of righteousness and peace. So maybe saying in the simplest of ways possible, what you're saying is is Matthew's readers, their hope and expectation is set upon a descendant, a son of Abraham coming and a descendant, a son of David coming. So that's mm-hmm. exactly what what Matthew's saying. We've found him. He's finally here. This is the new king. Yeah, no, absolutely. Yeah. And I think Matthew, he, by leading off that way, that is certainly a distinctive feature of his genealogy. And, you know, a lot of times there's a lot of play that's made about Matthew's audience is predominantly Jewish, where Luke had a more diverse audience, probably with a lot of Gentiles there. Mm-hmm. What, what do we make of that? Is that something that you feel like, oh, yeah, I, I think there, there's good reason to think that? Yeah. Jen? I mean, I think that's worth considering. Um, I don't know. JT, you got a lot on that? Uh, yeah, I think, I mean, I've, yes, I would agree. I would agree with that. I think the thing that I find really stunning in the gospel of Matthew in particular 
is is it's like this weird kind of rhetorical thing that's happening between Matthew and his audience and how he's telling the gospel story. So uh, Genesis 1, 1 through 16, this text that we're looking at, feels like it's like this religiously packed document that the religious leaders should clearly see and recognize and know that, oh my gosh, this is the son of Abraham, this is the son of David, this mm-hmm. is the guy we've been waiting for. Mm-hmm. But what's incredible is in the Gospel of Matthew, it's not the religious leaders, the ones who should have been aware of that story, who are recognizing Jesus as the son of David. Over and over and over again, it's the people that you would least expect to recognize Jesus as the son of David that do, for example, uh, the blind woman. Uh, or uh, uh, the blind man, the Canaanite woman. Mm-hmm. It's children who recognize uh, Jesus as as the the son of David. So it's common people. It's not the people that you would expect. So so it's it's kind of it's I think beautiful, but also kind of odd that Matthew's highlighting what feels like this religiously packed story that's unpacking the Old Testament in these first sixteen verses, and he's showing the people who should have seen this didn't see it. Right. But it's the people who who did see it that are, are the ones who have faith. And there are certainly unexpected people in the genealogy, right? So Matthew oh, yeah. mentions four women in particular. He mentions Tamar, mm-hmm. Rahab, Ruth, and Bathsheba. And then he also mentions Mary, but these four outside of Mary, they factor in. And right. to anybody who knows the Old Testament, that can be really surprising because these four women, if you are familiar with their stories, they all seem to have some suspicion around them in regards to sexual immorality, yeah. right? So like the kind of common understanding of these four women in the Old Testament is that these four women were sexually immoral. They were temptresses, they were adulterers, they were conniving, what do you think about that, Jen Wilkin? <laughs> what do you think I think? <laughs> yeah, this is a great topic. You know, I think that we have to be really aware as a church how much we tend to buy into what the culture has has said about uh, women who are who are marginalized and abused, and that is she wanted it or she asked for it. And that's the way that we've often read the stories of Rahab and Tamar, certainly. Um, I think even Bathsheba is often... Um, painted as as she was on the rooftop, you know, it's her fault because she was there bathing. Whereas, and, and what we fail to acknowledge in the stories of these women often is something that we as women living in the United States can take for granted. And that's agency, that we have control over the environments that we inhabit. And we have, we have uh, legal rights and we have representation and we have advocacy. And, 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 and the reality was in, in these cultures, women did not have those things. And I think Tamar is a really interesting name in this list. It, when you think about what it is that Matthew is trying to establish, right? Like he's trying to say the prophecies are fulfilled in Christ. And Tamar shows up at a point in the history of the nation of Israel where you've got Judah, right? And and Judah, it's prophesied by his father that he's the one um, that the throne will not depart, the scepter will not depart from Judah until the one to whom it belongs to comes. That's uh, Genesis 49. And Judah's story is that he has these three sons and um, Tamar has the frankly, the great misfortune to marry one of these terrible children that he's raised, Ur, his son Ur. And Ur is so awful to her that God strikes him dead. I mean, like, that's how bad this guy is. And so then she has a legal right, it's called leveret marriage, to to be married to the next son in line. But when she marries him, uh, any offspring that come from that marriage, she and the children would be the recipients of that firstborn inheritance. And so Onan, who... Um, is the second son. He's now hoping, oh, my brother's dead. I get these firstborn rights. But if he conceives a child with her, he forfeits them to her and her offspring. 
so he will not conceive a child with her. And so God strikes him dead too. So think about Tamar. I mean, she's had a really bad deal here. So basically, Judah then forbids, he does not allow her to marry the third remaining son. And he's like, I'm not going to lose another son to this black widow, basically. Hmm. She has no legal, she has legal recourse, but she has no way really to make sure that it is it, it taken into consideration. And so she poses as a prostitute and he sleeps with her, which it's interesting, isn't it? That he is like, oh, hey, look, a prostitute, you know, like, <laughs> right. seems like it was kind of a pattern for him, yeah. right? <laughs> Maybe and the then, apple didn't yeah. fall far from the tree with yeah. his sons. Yeah, and, and, and she hangs on to his, his signet ring and, and she keeps his, basically his wallet and his driver's license, the equivalent of keeping his wallet and his driver's license, right? So if Judah does not uh, marry his son to her, then the line does not does not go forward, and it's the promised line. So when she stands in the gap in this way, she's ensuring that God's promises continue through the line of Judah down to Christ. So she's actually advocate, and Judah recognizes this, right? You remember what his response is when he realizes what's happened and that she's pregnant by him, and he says, she has been more righteous than I have. And he commends her. So she's an interesting figure to me in this genealogy because she stands at a critical point in it where there's a big question mark about whether the line will, whether the promises of God will be fulfilled in the manner that he has said that they will be. What bridge is God calling you to cross that the gospel might go forth among the nations? Women like Lilius Trotter, Harriet Newell, and Sarah Hall Boardman Judson have indeed crossed their own bridges to get to the lost. Discover the stories of 10 inspiring female missionaries who changed the world for Christ. 10 Women Who Changed the World is seminary president Daniel Aiken's powerful tribute to these women who fulfilled the Great Commission. May we all follow in their footsteps. 10 Women Who Changed the World is available wherever books are sold. Have you ever wondered what is God's heart towards you? In this noisy world, God's heart beats hard with love and mercy. But how can God share his heart with us when he doesn't have our attention? You're invited to spend 100 days discovering the beautiful, merciful heart of God with Overflowing Mercies, a new devotional by Craig Allen Cooper. The Lord is not ashamed of you or quick-tempered toward your faults. Each one of your weaknesses, faults, frailties, and failures does more to arouse God's love than to stir up His anger. If you could fathom in some small way how warmly God truly feels about you, the faintest grasp of His immeasurable affection would reduce you to tearful wonder and heartfelt gratitude. As God's mercies are new every single morning, overflowing mercies will continue to be a constant well of refreshing comfort, encouragement, and strength. It's perfect for personal quiet times, family and dinner table devotions, and small groups. Let this devotional help you get intentional, stay connected to God, and continue loving others. Order your copy of Overflowing Mercies, 100 Meditations on the Tender Heart of God today at moodypublishers.com or wherever great books are sold. Yes, and that is such a helpful way of having better comprehension around who Tamar is, uh, what she does, why she does it, and then also a better angle on appreciating her role in the genealogy. I will say, though, that if you're somebody who's really prone to application points, the story of Tamar isn't a, like, <laughs> go and do likewise kind of deal. It's like, you know, uh, 
I think a lot of times this is a great example of what we've talked about uh, even in the first episode of this podcast, mm-hmm. which is that sometimes when we're reading the Bible, particularly with genealogies, we're going, okay, yeah, but how am I supposed to apply this? Yeah. Right? Well, I think part of the application of these genealogies is to try to remember that if we've been brought into Christ Jesus, Israel's story is our story. Mm-hmm. Like this genealogy impacts us, A, because it's the line in which Christ has come. So mm-hmm. praise the Lord for that. But also because as we enter into faith in Christ Jesus, Israel's whole history becomes our history. I'm not a Jew by birth. I'm not an Israelite by birth, but I have been brought in to this long history that includes Tamar. Mm-hmm. I need to know the true story about Tamar. Like I would want to know the true story about my grandmother. Like I would want to know who she is because I've been brought into a family of which Tamar is a part. And that's a huge thing. I think it also gives us an interesting reading of, of the actual birth narrative of Jesus Christ. So we kind of have these names that are mentioned of what can be seen as women who um, perhaps misread in, in kind of these unsavory ways, but there's kind of like maybe this underlying sexual immorality, which is the exact same thing that Mary begins right, to undergo. That's what she has to face. What she has to face. And, 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 and so Joseph says, well, I'll just, you know, kind of divorce her quietly mm-hmm. because this is, you know, something that, that shouldn't be a part of it. Then an angel comes and visits and says, no, 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 no. This is exactly the way the king is coming mm-hmm. through perhaps what might, what might be the most unexpected way for a king, a righteous king to make his arrival. That's good. I want to maybe pause a moment here because I think, um, let's say somebody reads the genealogies. They listen to us and they say, okay, I'm, I'm bought in. I think the genealogy is important. And then let's say they start begin, they start to begin studying the genealogies. They might run across something and they're like, oh my goodness. Well, why didn't they tell me about this, about the genealogy? And when you're looking at the genealogy, you're seeing these names and it's like, oh, this person was the, you know, mother or father. And this was the mother and father. And this was the mother and father. And there's one interesting name that sticks out. It's Rahab, another one of the women in there. Mm -hmm. And if you're kind of just going by the brass tacks of history, a casual Bible reader may go, hmm, the story about Rahab is a lot earlier than David. Mm -hmm. And if you want to know how much earlier it is, 1 Kings 6.1 tells us that it's about 480 years or so after the Exodus when Solomon builds the temple, okay? So if David is Solomon's father, and let's just give some like very generous subtractions here. There's a lot of years missing between Rahab and David, yet supposedly she's the great, great grandmother of David. What do we do about that? Why why does Matthew include Rahab as the great, great grandmother? Was it just that they all lived a really long time and that's how we justify getting to David? Or maybe we're trying to make the genealogy do something that it's not really trying to do? How do we account for maybe, and because it's not just present here, and some of the other genealogies, these issues arise in terms of the historical kind of ordering of these things. Let's just talk a little bit about, we've said the purpose of genealogies is usually distinct to its audience and the genre. Right. Does that help us account for this at all? Absolutely. I mean, he's not he's not trying to establish a number of years that have passed. He's establishing significant players and uh, and significant um, factors that have played into the accomplishment of his will through everyday human beings. And so his his objective is not to give us a timeline. It's to show us the faithfulness of God to all generations. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think another instinct we should have when we read these genealogies is just to be maybe briefly reminded that 
this first century audience would have, um, they're not treating these with any, like, he's not being cavalier, like, whoops, made that mistake, right. you know? Like, Hope they don't notice. Yeah, yeah, so, <laughs> like so, he was a bad researcher. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, numbers off. Can do and, math. And, and, so, mm-hmm. and so I think sometimes evangelicals, uh, uh, you know, who were confessing biblical authority, were confessing inerrancy, were confessing mm-hmm. that all that the Bible affirms is true and right and it's perfect, we can begin to see what we think is a discrepancy or distinction between these genealogies and think, oh my gosh. Somebody made a mistake. Somebody made a mistake or like, what happened here? And I, I, that, that doesn't have to be our instinct. We can actually approach this text with a great deal of confidence, knowing and believing that Matthew had a specific intention for, for drawing his genealogy this way. And it's a theological intention, again, to show that kind of, especially in Matthew, that this dynastic king, son of David, is coming. And so he's making a theological point. The same way a preacher perhaps right. would make a point as they're, as they're dealing with the biblical text, Matthew is putting forward a theological account that your king is here. Yeah. No, that's really good. And I think this issue around the genealogies gets at, you know, the historicity of the Bible and the Gospels. And I think a lot of times when we talk about that, we immediately begin to assume that the way that we think about history is the way that everybody has always thought about history, and it's the correct way to do history. Like we think about it usually in the modern West as history is a disinterested observer just reporting the facts. That's it. Now, here's the reality. That never happens. History is as much interpretation as it is just laying out the names and the dates and the numbers and who was where and when. It's also the why. Why does it matter that these people were here? Why does it matter what they did or who they were? It is interpretation. It's not just this disinterested disinterested observation about, okay, these are the people and this is when they were born and this is when they died and this is why that matters. It's like, no, it's we are telling you a view of history. I and mean, we know this just from like talking with friends, right? Mm-hmm. Like when we recount stories, I don't always feel the need whenever I'm with five or six friends to fill in all the context. Mm-hmm. Like I can assume a lot with these five or six people because I know you know everything surrounding the story. I think when we come to these genealogies and other historical questions, we have to remember, Israel knew the story. Mm-hmm. Right. They knew it way better than we did. Mm-hmm. So Matthew's audience of Jews is not hearing this genealogy and going, huh, I bet Matthew doesn't know. Her, where's he headed with this? <laughs> he's not yeah. going to fool them. There's no. just no way. They're going right. to be like, that was my great, 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 great uncle or aunt or grandfather or grandmother. So I think a lot of times we come to the Bible and go, oh my gosh, it's historically inaccurate. Whereas the Israelites would have looked at us and said, no, you just actually don't know the story. Right. That's That's really the problem. It's not that it's wrong. It's that you don't know the story. Not only that, but that their assumption, his original audience's assumption would have been that he had an agenda, that, that the reason he has put in certain facts and emphasized those over others, as all of us do when we craft a narrative is because he has an intended message to convey. And I think that we can forget that that in no way is a challenge to inerrancy. And if anything, it, it, it opens up the text for us in a way that we won't otherwise read it. That's great. Just kind of conclude our time here, um, and we'll do this occasionally. I just want to hear a little bit, is, has there been a resource recently or kind of a tool in your tool belt when it comes to Bible study or theological education or equipping, a topic that you've read, an app that you're using, a podcast that you've been listening to, just something that for the young Bible student or the emerging theologian that they could say, oh man, I would love to go and check that out. Just something that you feel like, man, this has been incredibly profitable. It could be about Matthew. It could be about the genealogies. It doesn't have to be. What's something that you've been engaging with? That you're like, I would really recommend this. 
all of Jen Wilkins' books. <laughs> <laughs> there we go. Uh, serious, in all seriousness, do read all of them, but I'll answer the question differently. Uh, so I think the, the, the resource that I've enjoyed the most over the past maybe six months or so has been an online source called Bible Project. And yeah. so the, this is, a, this is a, a group of men and women who are kind of committed to giving this incredibly imaginative uh, uh, biblically faithful retelling of of stories that for the longest time to me didn't make a lot of sense in terms of seeing how uh, the stories of what God has done in the Old Testament relate to the New Testament and seeing really this overarching history of redemption come to its fulfillment in Jesus Christ. If I could commend anything to you, if you're going to have like four or five minutes to watch something, go watch a video on their website. They're really doing a great they job. They are incredible. They're doing a They've great done a great job. job. Jen, what do you think? Okay, mine is really low level, but it's helped me. You know, I've just, I said uh, at one point that reading repetitively was a really important tool. I use a, a website called biblesummary.info and what they've done, this is really fascinating to me, is they have boiled down every chapter of the Bible into a 140 character or less tweet. Oh, wow. And so it, I'm not advising you to go out and tweet it all out. And I'm not saying that every summary would be one you would necessarily agree with. But when you're just trying to get your bearings on a place where you are in a book, it's been really helpful to me to just go out there and be like, oh, yeah, yeah, chapter 35 was about that. So it's just kind of a quick reference tool that I've used with increasing regularity just because it's kind of fun to see how they packed it all. I don't know whose job it was to write those, but I feel bad for that person. But it's just a really easy snapshot place to kind of go, oh, yeah, yeah, that's what that chapter was about. That's great. Um, I'll just tack on one more here, uh, a book. I've been reading, uh, this is a friend of the show, a friend of what we're doing here at the Village Church Institute, Jonathan Pennington. Dr. Pennington mm-hmm. has a new book out called The Sermon on the Mount and Human Flourishing, and I've been reading it, and it's incredible. Is that it, in your office where I can swipe it? No, it's at my house. I have been, uh, I've been copiously writing notes through the book. It's incredible. I would just recommend, if you have any interest in The Sermon on the Mount, uh, Dr. Pennington's book has been incredibly helpful of just giving some really basic ways of thinking about the Sermon on the Mount that I think are both fresh and faithful to the Sermon on the Mount. And it's helped me explore the Sermon on the Mount. I've now begun uh, trying to memorize the Beatitudes, just be inspired really by the way he thinks, helps you think about how the Sermon on the Mount is for our flourishing and how it is to properly orient us to how God created the world to be. Uh, And so I've been deeply encouraged by that book. So listen, that was the genealogy according to the Gospel of Matthew. We did 30 minutes on the genealogy, guys. Come on. And they all love it now. They're all going to be the most popular person at the next office party they have. (laughs) Right. They're like, "Um, have you ever considered uh, Ruth and Tamar? Tamar. (laughs) Thanks for listening to Knowing Faith, a podcast of training the church. For more information, you can look into the show notes in the podcast description. We'd be honored for you to leave us a podcast review on iTunes or wherever you find your podcast. You can find us online at trainingthechurch.com. You can find us on Instagram and Twitter by searching Knowing Faith. On our next episode, we'll be asking the question, is God three or one? And why the answer to that question is crucial. See you next time. Grace and peace.